Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring inspiring conversation with people at the grassroots and the grass tops, doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, or generally striving to make our democracy live up to its promise of a more perfect union. I hope their stories will inspire you to learn more about them or to take action on your own. Head over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. Today I'm speaking with Indian-American activist and racial justice leader Nisha Anand of DreamCorps. Once a radical grassroots activist arrested in Burma for passing out pro-democracy leaflets, Nisha's expansive organizing experience and work with mentors like Van Jones solidified her belief in the power of working with unlikely partners to find real solutions. As DreamCore's CEO, Nisha leads a diverse group of people who are learning, like her, the value of unconventional relationships. Nisha and I speak about how we can and must work with people across the divide to come up with lasting solutions to our biggest problems, how these solutions are enriched, not compromised, when we find common ground. And yes, you're hearing this right, an optimistic take on our ability to tackle the climate crisis. If you're interested in learning more about Nisha's journey from punk rock protester to common ground champion, check out her TED Talk, The Radical Act of Choosing Common Ground. And now here's my conversation with Nisha Anand. Nisha Anand, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thanks for having me. So Nisha, you're the CEO of DreamCorps, a nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing people together across racial, social, and partisan lines to solve our toughest problems. And what I want to talk to you about today is how you do that, which is also the subject of your massively successful TED Talk. Um, but before we talk about that, first, I'd love to hear more about your journey to this work. From your TED Talk, I know you've described yourself as a former punk rock lefty protester. <laughs> How did you get from there to here? Well, it's all true. What you heard is true. I did grow up as a punk rock kid. I grew up in the South, in Atlanta, Georgia, in the 80s. And I come from an immigrant family. My parents are from India. And in Atlanta, in the 80s, it was very much a black and white town. And so just being Indian in the South at that time meant I was a bit of a misfit. I already had things that weren't the norm, and a lot of my childhood was trying to figure that out. Where do I fit in? Or feeling left out or left behind. And so I think my journey is a pretty straight line from there because I've always wanted to fight for folks who are left out and left behind. I didn't want anyone to be bullied. I wanted to find inclusive ways to build everything. So in some ways, it seems like a straight line. But it's also a bit of a crooked line because there are a whole lot of ways to do that. And what I've learned is people with good hearts all have different ways to do that. We don't all come about it at the same way. But if you're a good heart and you want to see the world be better, you're going to have an idea of how to do it. It might not be the same as mine. And it took me along. That path is more crooked on how I came to embrace different ideas of how to move forward and not just my own idea. And I was a punk rock activist, chaining myself to buildings. I got arrested, you know, over a dozen times. But I was also a straight-A student and captain of the debate team, and I had to make sure my parents were very proud of my straight A's. And I was all those things, so many different identities. And I think about that a lot, that we all have these multiple identities, and we know how to negotiate them within ourselves. Like, my punk rock side is not in conflict with my straight-A student side, and a lot of what I do is getting back to that. 
in trying to solve problems, we can work with people across any divide. We should work with people across any divide for strategic reasons and philosophical reasons, but I also just think innately we can. And so it was a bit of a crooked path getting to where I am now, which is I do think common ground is critically important for lasting solutions, solutions that will really move this country forward. So was there an aha moment along the way? When did you start shifting from tearing it down to working within the system? Well, if I'm honest, I'm going to say it's a lot more recently than I talk about. I think the first time that it really hit me in terms of being able to articulate this way of change versus the old way of change was about eight and a half years ago when I came into this job at DreamCore. I interviewed with Van Jones, who's our founder. And in that interview, he told me that we were going to pass bipartisan criminal justice reform. And I laughed because I thought that sounded like an oxymoron. I had been fighting for criminal justice reform and police brutality issues for my entire activist life, and I had never seen it as a bipartisan issue. I even remembered out on the streets in the 2000 Republican National Convention in Philly, we were out on the streets getting arrested for this very issue, and it was at the Republican convention, and not a single one of them was on the streets with us. And so I thought it was an oxymoron, but he walked me through it. He said, Nisha, you and I have been fighting for these reforms from one angle our whole lives. We see the criminal justice system, and we think it's not fair, and it's unjust, and it's racist, and that since its inception, it has applied laws unfairly to different groups of people. And so we have this strong sense of justice, which makes us want to change it. But he said, and if it's not obvious already, I come from the left, but he said on the other side of the aisle, on the Republican side, you have fiscal conservatives who see a bloated system with taxpayer dollars going to not help, but just get bigger and bigger and bigger. So more and more taxpayer dollars. You have fiscal conservatives that want to see it change. You have the religious right, who believe in second chances, in redemption, and are anti-death penalty, they want to see that change because there is no redemption in the current system. And he said you also have libertarians on the right who think it is an overreach of police state. No one should be inside for marijuana offenses. And even if just that one issue we can agree on and move forward, that would make a huge difference in terms of the numbers of incarcerated. So he's like, we have three wings of the Republican Party who want to work on this. Not for the same reasons, but if we can work with them, we can make a big change. Can you suspend your activist-y thing and try this with me? And I said, yes, and we did. And now people today, and I can tell you about the accomplishments of that because I'm quite proud, about 20,000 people are home because of a piece of federal legislation we passed called the First Step Act. But today when we say we're going to do it on climate, Everyone says, no, it's impossible. There's no way to do it on climate. And I remember that was me. That's exactly what I said to him in my interview about nine years ago was there's no way. It's an oxymoron. And so folks say, oh, yeah, of course you can do it on criminal justice. That's a bipartisan issue, but never on climate. I just have to remember that that wasn't the case. Definitely want to get to climate. In terms of your work on criminal justice reform, can you tell me a little bit more about the unlikely allies you had in the fight, people you may or may not have thought you could ever work with? 
Absolutely. I think it was from day one. Van had told me that our partner on this would be Newt Gingrich. He was on a TV show called Crossfire, which has been canceled many times over, over the generations with different hosts. But on Crossfire, you have people from Republican and Democrats, and they argue about issues of the day. It's actually probably healthy for our democracy to have shows like that. I wish they'd stay on the air, but him and Newt were on that show for CNN, and he had said that Newt wants to work on this. And I couldn't believe it because Newt was my representative. I grew up in Georgia. And I remember when the 1994 crime bill got passed, I was a senior in high school and it was something I was on the street for protesting against. And I really thought Newt was evil growing up. And he told me he wanted to work on it. And it took a lot for me to see it in that way. But it was an aha moment when I realized I might disagree with him on 80 things, But if there are 10 we agree on, don't we owe it to this country to work on those 10 together and do everything we can? And the answer was yes. And that's kind of the attitude that I've taken for a long time is I am so serious about progress and I am so serious about the vision I have for this country that I will work with absolutely anyone to get it done. That's incredibly unusual, but you know that. Working with those with whom we disagree, for instance, Newt Gingrich, and who many Democrats have declared enemies of the state, like Newt Gingrich, takes tremendous bravery. What do you say to activists who accuse you of selling out or that you're a traitor or something like that? Yes, it happens quite a bit. I have to tell my team this on a regular basis because when they join us, it's one of the questions we ask in an interview is that people will call you a sellout. They will say There's no way you can work with people on the other side of the aisle. They're doing these horrible things to us. You can't work with them. And I hear that. There's a lot of pain because there are a lot of painful things happening. I have to point to the strategy, first of all, that usually gets through to people first, which is right now in Congress, you cannot get anything passed without a Republican on board. And we control Congress. And so one, there's a strategy side. If you don't know how to work with Republicans, you won't. You cannot add up the numbers to make it happen. So we could wait, but I know no one in prison wants to wait. I know the environment can't wait. We know how dire it is. And so waiting for the right group of people to come on board is a losing strategy. So I think strategically, it's easy to get through to folks. The proof is in also what happens, like, 20,000 people are home because we were brave enough, not just to work with Newt, but we had to get the president at that time, which was Trump. We started it under the Obama administration, but we did not give it up when Trump became president, although many people wanted us to do so. We had to get him to sign it. It was not the most favorable circumstances, but I promise you everyone who came home believes it was favorable. So I say first is to point to the results. Would you rather those people still be inside? But then I also think there's a philosophical thing that I also tell my staff, which is when the strategy works, we're going to be the group that gets things done. But we do not want to create a country that works for some and not others. That's what we're fighting against right now. And if we want to tell folks, for instance, when we talk to someone, we're like, oh, I think that maybe that person doesn't quite have our analysis around race, or maybe they're forwarding racist programs and parts of their work. We don't want to replicate that same thing. We can see their blind spot. Hey, they've never actually been around people like me, so they don't understand what I might need. And we can clearly see it in other people, but we have a hard time pointing it to it in ourselves that we have our own blind spots. If I was to craft a climate policy 
just for the people like me in San Francisco Bay Area that have left side leaning things. The policy is going to address drought and corporate pollution and fires, and that's what it's going to address. If I talk to farmers in middle America who really understand the threat of climate, they're going to have a different set of policies. That's my blind spot. So also you have to include it to have the best solution. And we've studied this in business. We know and we tell companies here in Silicon Valley, you need to diversify. You're going to have a better product. But somehow we can't say that to ourselves or we think diversity only looks like a certain thing. And so I like to talk about our blind spots. We need people there who see the things we don't. Just like we'll urge that other guy we might think has a big old blind spot around race to find other opinions. We have to figure out where ours are too. That's a really interesting take on common ground because I think a lot of people think about it as compromising. Right. But you're saying it's really amplifying, enlarging, making it better to include more voices. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to hear about climate change. I mean, your proposals on climate change. What you guys are doing at Dream Corps, what different coalitions you think you can pull together? Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of common interest on climate. And I'm pulling up our principles right now so I can tell you what we've agreed to already across the aisle. But we started out with the same observation that we did on criminal justice. There are a lot of people who are not traditionally associated with the left caucus, the left coalition, who care about climate. The military, for instance, has come out and realized that climate, climate change, climate disasters are causing a lot of military instability, whether it's a sea level rising around military bases or it's having climate refugees because of the increase in climate disasters, it is making the world unstable. So the military has recognized that that is a big part of policy problems of the future. So they have an interest. I mentioned farmers who don't traditionally vote with the liberal coalition are also very upset about what's been happening and what they've had to endure and kind of try to find solutions for. We have young conservatives who actually do care a lot about climate change. And so we actually have a partnership with the American Conservation Coalition. It's probably one of the largest right-leaning coalitions that we're partnered with on climate to really talk about where there is agreement. And there are some areas where there's not, but there is so much where there is, we really owe it to ourselves to move it forward. That's incredibly exciting. I know that probably criminal justice reform seemed impossible before you did it. Climate policy seems impossible right now, especially with the massive fossil fuel interests lobbying and big money invested in the status quo. Do you ever, does that seem different than criminal justice to you? No. I guess the short answer is no. It doesn't seem different. You have to find where the overlapping interests are. What I know is more powerful than the lobby money out there, and this is from experience both on climate and on criminal justice, is the real stories of what's happening and the real impacts of what happening, of what is happening breaks through all of the lobbying dollars. When we bring folks who are climate storytellers who can tell exactly on the front line what's happening and how it impacts their world, we open so many doors of congresspeople and senators. I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's not that different. And we have to start hearing each other on any of those issues in order to get something done. We're looking at it right now around Russia and Ukraine, for sure, in the oil prices. And you have 
a set of folks that are saying, this is exactly why we need more fossil fuels and we need to drill more and then we wouldn't be dependent. You have a lot of people saying, and this is exactly why we need to invest in alternative energy and all of the alternative energy that's out there so we don't have to be dependent. So we're up against that right now. Big oil is absolutely lobbying against what is obvious to most people, including our conservative partners on climate. It's time to decrease our dependence on fossil fuels. So we're up against that right now. And I think we're actually doing quite well in people understanding the difference. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, just to bring it down to the very small scale, being like, I really should have bought that electric car, huh? It clicks with folks. It's not seen as like these weird vehicles or for all the hippies. It's now like, yeah, it's probably the smarter choice. So I think we're winning even now. That's honestly the most exciting thing I've heard on the climate front in a really long time. So thank you. (laughs) I will be very excited to follow where you guys go with that. If you haven't realized yet, I'm an optimist. So I'm always here for the (laughs) optimistic take, but I'm a determined optimist. It's not necessarily, I'm always going to paint you the rose color picture, but I'm always, call me whenever you want one. (laughs) I certainly can. But I've just seen too much change happen. And I've seen people who are determined to create a better future actually do it. That's what makes me optimistic. So I want to dig in a little on the concept of common ground a little bit more. In your TED Talk, you use the word radical in conjunction with your common ground movement. Since when has that been a radical thing? Isn't our country built on common ground? Our country at its highest intentions is built on common ground. Its highest intention was this should be a place where everybody can be. But we know from the founding documents that there was in the founding documents of the country, there was this dream that everyone, we the people, it had in it this promise of a place where everyone could exist. And at the same time, it had a nightmare where people were excluded, enslaved, massacred in huge rates. Women obviously were not considered in the same way. And we've always been that. We've been this push and pull between, yes, we have to be inclusive of everyone, but everyone that looks like me. So we're still in that battle. It's not over. But I feel like every generation we're getting closer to that founding dream and a little bit further away from that founding nightmare. That being said, common ground has always, at least when you're looking at the legislator, excluded some people. So yeah, it's what our country is about. No, we've never done it well. When I talk about radical common ground, it isn't compromising my values, And I think that that's really important, that I do not go in a room and ever forget who I'm there for. I don't go in a room and try to be something I'm not. I couldn't if I tried. I'm me anywhere I go. I just, I'm at this point in my life, I show up who I am. And I think that is refreshing for our conservative partners, that if you're in a room with somebody from Dream Corps, you can count on them to be authentically themselves to bring the view from the progressive side of the left, to always make sure the person that is hurt worst by the problem we're trying to solve has a seat at the table to tell the story and and explain the impact, you can count on us for that. Just like I can count on the other side to bring in my blind spots. Where am I trampling on individual's liberty and individual choice? It's something I never think about. It's just not how I'm wired, but they do. And I can count on them to bring that to the table. And if we know what we can expect of each other when we're sitting there, and you know how to have a good relationship and not an adversarial one, we've come up with interesting policies we've been able to pass. And to me, that is what America should be or what it is supposed to be. 
we have to keep doing more of that. And so that's what I ask my team every day when we come up with new campaigns and ideas. Does this bring our country closer together or does it divide us further? And if it divides us further, I think it must do both. If it divides us further, I do not want a part of it. Someone else can work on that or hopefully start changing and trying to bring people together. If it doesn't bring us closer together, how can we make it so? How can we work on an issue that will bring in different perspectives? And not just bipartisan, which is what we do legislatively, but our tech program that looks at tech equity does a lot of work between grassroots activists, schools, and big companies and corporations to really think about closing that gap between who's there and and who products are made for and who are in these great jobs of the future. So it's radical in that I do not think it's compromise for me. It's about really getting to know and understanding the other perspective. And there's a big difference. You go in a room trying to convince someone of your way of being so you can get more of your goods. That's a negotiation. It's a little different versus going in and being you and seeing where you can find a place to move forward together. So you talked about criminal justice reform and you talked about climate policy. You talked about tech equity. Where else can you envision big change through this common ground approach? What would be your dream list? Well, these three are never going to tire me. I think there's a lot to be done there. I think this approach can be used to everything. And when I talk about common ground at the most basic level, I think people can understand one-on-one how to have that conversation with the relative you never wanted to talk to. But I do think this is the formula for at-scale solutions to problems. So education, immigration, healthcare, I think you can work across so many of the big issues and find this. I would, and I haven't been in this situation, but I would love to wager with someone, can we find an issue that this wouldn't work with and spend a day sorting it out? That would be interesting to me because every time I play it out, especially with people who work on these issues and are more experts, we're able to find a place to work with an unlikely ally. And that unlikely pairing gets you so much farther than just sticking in your silos. I should also say a bit of why it's radical right now is because if you step out and say this, you are going to get hate from social media. And so there's a bit of bravery of saying that you'll tolerate that. To be able to come out pretty loud and proud and say, this is how we're going to do it, it's not for the weak. It's the harder way. It is definitely not for the weak. You mentioned social media. What role do you think that social media has played in the breakdown of common ground and sort of the concept of the commons? And What actually potential do you think it has to bring us together? I think there is. You can't ignore the role that our current media landscape has played in this division. It is so easy. When I grew up, we all watched the same TV show, for instance. You only had three choices on any given night. And so we were consuming the same media, which might have been bad. So maybe we were all thinking in a similar way. But it meant we understood what news was mostly factual. Of course, there's always been a media bias, and you don't always get the full story. That's always been the case. But now it's so easy to get into your media wormhole and only see news. You get deeper and deeper and deeper into just your one way of thinking. It is quite dangerous, and there are plenty of studies on this. It plays a huge role. It also has the potential to play the opposite role. We have never been so connected. We have never been able to make a friend that is so different than us from a different country at a different world, different place and time. That is 
unbelievable to you or me when we were younger. Like that idea, I mean, you remember pen pals. It was like a big deal. You'd write somebody in a far off place and months later you'd get something back from them and it was a big deal. That has changed so dramatically. If we can open up that spirit of curiosity and trying to get to know somebody different than ourselves and really wanting to know them and see them, and hopefully they see us back, that has the potential to break down so much. When I say it out loud, sometimes I think I sound kind of cheesy, really true, like, oh, we just need to all get along. And But I, I know it to be true, but it can't be inauthentic and it can't be just because it's not like, hey, we all love puppies and that's enough. It's actually deeper than that. You have pain and I have pain. You're grieving something. The pandemic, for instance, I think was a great equalizer. We all lost so much, whether it was lost our loved ones, lost time, watched our children suffer for what they lost. There's so much pain and grief. And that understanding that it's a way I've been able to connect with people I never would have thought I would connect with because we can experience that together. And and from there, this is another thing Van always likes to say, and it's in my brain. I can't help not say it, but common pain can lead to common purpose. And from there, common purpose can lead us to common projects. And I think that's the point we're in right now, if we'll let it. Yeah, I'll never forget being in New York after 9-11 and just the way everyone came together, all these different factions, everyone dropped all their differences and worked together. It was a really a remarkable, like tragic, but remarkable moment in time. And the whole world order changed from that moment too. We saw the potential of coming together. We also saw the entire world reorganize around that event. And the same thing I think is true from the pandemic. The first few weeks of it, you saw everybody honoring essential workers, honoring all of the frontline workers and healthcare workers, people banging pots and pans out of their windows. There was such a solidarity for the folks who had to put our groceries on the shelves. They were our heroes. And so we saw that. And then we saw the entire world change overnight. And everyone understood how interconnected we are. We were. And then we weren't able to capture that and move forward. But I think we're closer than we have been. I hope so. I feel like the pandemic is one example of these wedge issues that politicians have manipulated the rest of us into taking sides on it when really most people are in agreement. I'm just thinking of also of women's reproductive rights where they say that, I don't know, I think it's 60% or 59% of people believe that women should have the right to choose and yet it's become this incredibly divisive obviously hugely divisive subject in our nation. I feel like those are areas that might be great potential for working with other people when it's like, wait, you think that? I think that. I don't know why, you know, my lawmaker is saying this, that, or the other thing. That's not what I think. And it can start with us too. It has to start with us. One of the things that got really political here, of course, and everywhere was masks and who wants to wear a mask. And so the way I saw it starting with me was I was thinking, why are these people being so stupid? We know they work. Why don't they want to wear it? This and the other. And what I did first was recognize their pain. I don't like it. It hurts my face. It's giving my child pimples. So they're upset and they're, and I said, you're right. That does suck. We, can we admit that? 
Can we just admit no one likes actually wearing masks? It doesn't mean we've lost our point. It means we've connected on a common place of pain. And then from there, you can actually have a much better conversation. So for me, I always try to first say what they're saying is right. No matter what, I find a place, some place where I can understand and agree. It's not the whole issue. It doesn't concede the issue, but it allows me to really fully embrace a part that I can understand and hopefully they can do it back and you can get somewhere farther in the conversation. Practically speaking, what do your conversations sound like when you are reaching out to people across the aisle? You've talked a little bit about trying to see their side, but how do you even get them to pick up the phone? It is. It's hard work. I hope that our reputation speaks for itself, but there is a lot of connections that happen across party lines. So where we have had a good relationship with some of our conservative partners, they'll make the introductions to other conservative partners. I am not trying to work with every single person in the Republican coalition. And I think that that's what I have to let people know. I get that there are some horrible, awful things happening in every sector of society. But if we focus too much on the awful elements and the awful people or the awful groups, we're missing the fact that the majority of the country is awesome people. It's all the awesome people in the middle that we actually can work with. And too often we want to just stick in the silos because they also happen to be the loudest. But for me, if I can just tune that out for a bit, there's plenty of coalition work that can be done with all of the awesome people in the middle. And so that's where we focus. And there's a lot more that people want to do. They just need an invitation to do it and to do it together. And so I've actually been encouraged by how many people join into the things that we're doing. And it was a little slow going on climate. It was during the Trump administration that we decided to build the table of bipartisan leaders. And a lot of folks wanted to be really quiet for a while, especially through the election and didn't want to have any public statement. And I can understand that we are in an area where we can't ask everyone to be brave all the time. There are political calculations that have to happen. But with time and with authentic partnerships, it's become stronger and bigger. And so I think it's hard because we don't know what we don't know and we don't know the people we don't know. So there's often sometimes when we're starting off, we're like, I don't even know what groups work on this on the conservative side. That should show you that there's a big blind spot there because we've dug a little bit and found a lot. So what practical advice do you have for us regular people who are trying to build bridges and help depolarize society? Everything from communicating with our lawmakers to having conversations with our neighbors to sitting with that relative at Thanksgiving who has completely different opinions. This is something I personally struggle with. How do we think strategically instead of letting anger get in the way? Yeah. I think the first thing is something we've learned over and over and over again. We're going to keep learning this lesson for the rest of our lives, which is listen, listen deeply, listen to understand. We have to listen with hopes of understanding where someone is coming from instead of listening in order to win our point or listening in order to disprove their point. It's a huge difference. You know your point. You'll get your chance to make it, but fully understand and get curious most people are not irrational people. We have come to be who we are based on a whole set of circumstances that led us to this moment. At the beginning of the conversation, I told you about being a misfit and never fitting in. And therefore, I've wanted to build solutions for everybody. We all have that story. 
every single person. And so whatever their idea is that you vehemently disagree with, there's a reason they came to that. So you don't have to agree with what they're saying now, but you can learn about why and get curious about why. And so if I hear something I don't like, the first thing I ask is, tell me more. Well, can you explain that a little bit more? Where do you think you think that? That helps a lot. Those are some of the questions. So I dig deeper and I learn, but also it signals I'm really curious. And we've known this since the beginning of time too, is that people like talking about themselves. (laughs) So just ask questions and get curious and do that first. And in any opening conversation, you don't even have to make your point back. That goes a long way to having a better relationship and understanding. If you can do that truthfully and authentically for someone else, they'll do it back for you. So I get curious. And then my other favorite phrase, if I get curious and we've had a great conversation, we have a great relationship, and I'd say that relationship first, I'll sometimes just say, oh, I see it a little differently. It helps a lot. It's not you're wrong, you're racist, your idea sucks. It's simply, I see it differently. Meaning my perspective is different than your perspective. I'm not putting a judgment on it. And usually people will say, oh, how do you see it? I'm a persuader, like I told you, captain of the debate team. So I love to argue. I love to win a point. If I find myself switching into that mode, I step back and I try to step back. I do it the most with my dad. That's where I cannot control myself. He is a Republican. He voted for Trump twice and he loves to talk politics. And I've gotten a little bit better over the years. That's the person I have the hardest time practicing it with. But I can recognize it right away. There's this thing in me that just switches and I'm like, ah, and want to fight. (laughs) Well, our relatives always know the best buttons to push. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any heroes or thought leaders that you turn to for inspiration on all of this stuff? Yes. And there are people alive right now that I think are remarkable and are doing this work. And I already mentioned Van Jones, who's the founder and is very misunderstood in the world. But I know where his heart is. I've been lucky to work with him for the last 10 years. And he is brilliant around thinking about building a world that will work for everybody and creating this future with dignity and freedom for all. He is very serious about it. And I've been lucky to work for him. I'm lucky now to to have him as a partner and mentor and on our board. And I learn from him every day. So I just want to shout out Van because a lot of my ideas do come from him. But there are other folks out there right now who are doing amazing work. I would shout out Valerie Kaur of the Revolutionary Love Project, her book, Stranger, was foundational for my understanding of how to actually love with a radical heart. Because love sometimes is a word that also sounds mushy, like common ground. But I've looked at revolutionaries of the past and people who've really changed the world. And the ones who are bridge builders and keep love at the center of everything they do, that's who I've been inspired by. And she really, she's a living, breathing, I think, visionary for that way of seeing the world. I ask everyone to check out her book. It's fantastic. But yeah, there are a lot more. I think there are people out there doing this work and it's hard. And throughout history, bridge builders always get a bad rap. They've paid a pretty big price. So what can listeners do if they want to learn more about your work at DreamCore and get involved? We are looking for members from all over the country, from all different backgrounds who have some type of dream that they want to see happen in the world. But more than that, they want to see it bring people together, pursuing this dream and this future of what America can be. 
that you also want to figure out how to do it in a way that is radically inclusive, that can make it better for everybody. And so we do look for members and advocates throughout the country who are looking for this other way of doing social change that's not there yet. So absolutely on our website, dreamcore.us, which is spelled like Peace Corps or Marine Corps, dreamcore.us, there's a lot of ways to get involved, but we are actively trying to build that network and people across the country that want to be that light for a different way of solving problems and not the fighting and the bickering and the calling each other names and calling each other out on social media and kind of that shame-based activism. We're about something different. So if that's you, we're looking for you. I'm all in. I'm totally over the other stuff. Well, Nisha Anand, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you for this incredible work you're doing bringing us together. Thanks. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.